We read then from Genesis uh, chapter 1 and reading verses 1 to 13 uh, of this chapter. I hope you'll really enjoy this series in, in Genesis. Uh, I found it really invigorating uh, studying it, and uh, I thought I understood Genesis chapter 1, <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I think you'll discover as well that there's tremendous depths here uh, and wonderful insights that will help us in school and in work and in Christian living as, as we seek to, to serve God. I did plan the series to be chapters 1 to 3, uh, but it's not going to be chapters 1 to 3 uh, over these uh, eight sermons. It'll be chapter, chapter 1. Uh, there's such depth and, and gospel and help for us in this chapter. Genesis 1, 1 to 13. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, the darkness he called night. There was evening, there was morning the first day. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening. There was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, and there was morning, the third day. Tonight we want to think of verses 1 and 2. Uh, of Genesis chapter 1, and I've entitled this uh, Absolute and Relative Creation, Absolute and Relative Creation, and hopefully by the end of the service you'll understand 
uh, the distinction, an important distinction uh, that we're making uh, here. Martin Luther, uh, he comments on verses uh, 1 and 2, the very simple meaning of what Moses says is this, everything was created by God. And that is our basic belief that everything was created by God. But as we begin to unpack these verses, we will see that there are nuances and levels and distinctions, important distinctions, which this part of Scripture makes clear. I think the Shorter Catechism perhaps also gives us a a general understanding of God's work of creation. Uh, You remember the the definition to the question, what is God's work of creation? God's work of creation is his making all things out of nothing in the space of six days and all very good. And as you sit there this evening and you think of this definition and especially the words all things out of nothing, you wonder... What about Adam? He wasn't made out of nothing. He was made from the dust of the ground. What about Eve? She wasn't made out of nothing. She was made from the rib of Adam. So as we reflect on the Shorter Catechism definition, God's work of creation is his making all things out of nothing in the space of six days and all very good, we are properly to appreciate that that is a broad definition. And there is an important distinction and nuance that we are to appreciate in the biblical account of creation. And it's the distinction which I'm emphasizing tonight between absolute creation, all things out of nothing, and relative creation, some things out of something. Both are supernatural works of God. Both are works which left to themselves would never happen. Adam would never emerge from the dust. Naturally, it takes this supernatural, creative act of God to perform that work. But there is a distinction to help young people and ourselves of absolute creation out of nothing. That's verse 1. And relative creation out of something. That's verse 2 in Genesis chapter 1. So no alliteration this evening. These simple headings, absolute creation in verse 1 and relative creation in verse 2. So let's think of these two points uh, this evening. First of all, absolute creation in verse 1. Now there's two dominant views by evangelical scholars on the role of verse 1. The first view is that it's a title of the whole work of creation. 
in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So verse 1 in that position, that view, it's asserting that God is the creator of everything. The heavens and the earth. It's imagining the heavens and the earth in their completed state. Their fully furnished position with grass and beasts and flowers and trees and mankind living within planet earth and the stars being there and the sun and moon revolving. It's a title for the whole chapter, for the whole work of God's creation. And and you notice how the name God appears right throughout the first chapter and into verse 3. And then in verse 4, we have the name Lord God. That there is this deliberate emphasis on this singular title of the deity, God, a word which means power and strength. And this is what's been emphasized in this part of Scripture, this attribute of God, his strength, his power. And this view of verse 1 being the title is emphasizing this. Here is the mighty God making heaven and earth in its perfection, beauty, and furnished state. And it's not a wrong view to hold that position. But I think the traditional view is better. And the traditional view held by Calvin, held by Luther, held by Douglas Kelly is that verse 1 is describing the creation out of nothing, of the basic materials from which God will then go on to form all things. So here in verse 1 we have the absolute creation that I've talked about, the ex nihilio, if you know Latin or want to learn that, out of nothing. Here is God in this moment in eternity where only he, Father, Son, and Spirit existed. And in a moment in eternity, he brings into being the basic materials from which he will in the days of creation Form the universe. And it's not uh, an insignificant point, this, is it? This bringing all things out of nothing. Darwin, in his evolutionary theory, uh, you remember, he talks about the the chemicals in that warm pond from which life came. But when pressed, the evolutionists don't have an answer for the origin of that warm pond. Where did those chemicals come from originally? Bertrand Russell maintains that they were just there. Other 
evolutionary theorists maintain that by chance those chemicals came together, as you know the theory is. Verse 1 is maintaining that in the beginning, the beginning of space, the beginning of matter, the beginning of time, God created all things. And our response is to worship. The Bible at the very beginning wants us to bow down before this absolutely eternal sovereign being and praise and trust and honor and love this God. Think of his greatness. We're bounded by time, aren't we? We're always looking at our watch, even during the sermon sometimes, eh? Bounded by time. But it's part of creation. Augustine has this, has this great quote, doesn't he? He says, it is idle to look for time before creation, as if time can be found before time. There was God in his greatness, above time, before time, outside of time. Revelation says that there will come an era when time will be no more and God will sweep us up into his sphere and arena above time. But in the beginning of time and matter and space, God created the heavens and the earth. And their support for this ex nihilio, out of nothing, absolute creation view of verse number one. And that support is found in the text itself in a number of ways. It's found in the word created itself. Uh, and this gets a bit technical for you, uh, but you, you'll, you'll manage it. The Hebrew word is, is bara, to create. But what's crucial is that the Bible uses bara in two different ways. Sometimes with the cal stem, Q-A-L, sometimes without the cal stem. So verse 25, God is creating the beasts. That's the Hebrew word bara, made the beasts. But bara here is not in the cal stem, and so it means created out of something, the relative creation. But in verse 1 and throughout Scripture, when bara is used with the cal stem, it always means created out of nothing. And here we are in this moment, informing the evolutionists. This is where it all began. In the beginning, God created out of nothing the heavens and the earth. Buttressing that position is the form of the pronoun God. Hebrew has singular, plural, and dual. We have singular and plural. Singular, plural, and dual. And God here is in the plural. And we use this in defense of the Trinity 
that here in the very first verse of the Bible, there is this hint that God is tri-personal. And later on in this chapter, we'll come to see this. Let us make man in our image. It's in the plural. And this, this dual form, plural form, is spelled out for us later on in the chapter. But we, we, we don't have to hold on to that understanding of God exclusively. Calvin says the plural form of God here indicates his majesty. Matthews comments uh, on this very point and says that it's a literary convention that conveys special reverence. And it's emphasizing the glory of this being. He's creating out of nothing. Everything. What a being he is. What majesty he has. The word beginning emphasizes this ex nihilio absolute creation of verse number one in the beginning. The beginning of everything, of time, of space, of matter. God created the heavens and the earth. It's a Hebrew phrase for everything, used in chapter 14 and verse 19 of Melchizedek, the Lord, the possessor of heaven and earth, the possessor of everything, this absolute creation, out of nothing, God made in the beginning. What a start to the Bible. What a start to our studies in creation. Because that the main aim of evolutionary theory is to explain the origin of life and matter apart from God. Evolutionists want a theory of beginnings and origins where they don't have to have God in it. That's their aim. There's gaps in their theory. There's missing links in the fossil records and findings. They recognize that, but they want to hold on to evolutionary theory, a theory that doesn't involve God. Richard Lovatin, the Harvard geneticist, says, we have a prior commitment to materialism. That materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Evolutionary theory wants to explain the world apart from God. But the Bible won't allow. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Perhaps the question for believers tonight is not so much who, not so much how, But why? 
Why? Why? The triune God and the eternal blessedness of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why did he create all things? It wasn't loneliness, was it? That's been a view that's been propounded, but but we reject that. They were perfectly blessed in the triune fellowship. The common broad answer is for his own glory, that he will display his works and have worshippers of angels and humans to praise and honor and glorify his name. Revelations for all things were made by you and for you and for your pleasure they were created. But Wolfgang Capita, 16th century reformer, he suggests that creation was to provide a bride for Christ. That the father wanted a bride for his son. Whether we take the broad view that it's for his glory or this narrower suggestion of capita, that it's for the pleasure and joy of the son of God, the bottom line is, There is a reason. There is a purpose. There is a plan to creation and our part in it. Absolute creation then, first of all. Secondly, moving into verse 2, relative creation, the matter which has been made is described in this second verse. It's described in graphic terms here, without form, void, darkness over the face of the deep. The Hebrew has rhyming words. If you want to know that, tohu, bohu, without form, desolation, bohu, waste. Douglas Kelly describes it, the original created elements We're not differentiated, separated, and organized. Alder says the earth still had not been given the ordered form it now has. The earth was without form and empty. Darkness, there was no light at this stage. Basic elements were there. Capita comments on this, he says, an abyss filled with a confusion of water and mud in complete darkness which would unhinge any human mind that attempted to penetrate it. Henry Morris comments similarly, he says, all the basic material elements sustained in a pervasive watery matrix throughout the darkness of space. Formless, void, darkness over the deep. The basic materials from which the earth would be produced made out of nothing. Those of you who are older probably have interacted with the, the gap theory in your life popularized in the Schofield at reference Bible and it's still around amazingly and it's emerges between verses 1 and 2. They translate the second verse, the earth became without form and void. 
the theory is that there's a, there's a gap of a, a long period of time uh, between verse 1 and verse 2. They understand verse 1 as being a, a, a beautiful, glorious creation which God made. Uh, Satan and, and the angels fell in that creation and, and brought down it, th that earth. And so it became formless and void with darkness over it. So verse 2 is considered by the gap theorists as a judgment of God, a decimated, glorious earth that once was ruined by Satan and his followers. Thomas Chalmers, uh, incredibly uh, pressed by developments in scientific discoveries, he adopted the, the gap theory in the 18th century, in 19th century. But, but we reject that position, don't we? The, the usual translation of the Hebrew word is, was, in verse number two. The Bible has no significant mention of this fall, uh, which the gap theorists maintain uh, in this part of Scripture. You, you consider the amount of space given to the flood and given to the fall of Adam and Eve, that there is no significant mention of a fall of a glorious world collapsing into a decimated world in these verses. Satan probably wasn't created until the second, third day, some think the sixth day. All of those reasons mitigate this argument for the gap theory and, and warns us about trying to, to adjust uh, the scriptural passages into relating it uh, to science and, and allowing science to have the, the louder voice, the stronger voice, so that we comply and, and, and change scripture, its plain sense, uh, to, to fit in with that. But all of us probably have read more scientific literature than wrestled with Genesis chapter 1. Most of us are probably far more familiar with scientific terminology than with the, the Hebrew and theology of Genesis 1. And the gap theory, I think, calls us back to the text and the meaning of the text and the plain sense that's given us here. But besides the material elements in verse 2, there is the supernatural influence. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And here is the climax of this opening section in the creation account. The Spirit of God was present. In Hebrew, the word for wind and spirit, ruah, it's the same. And you can see the connections. You see it in John 3, Jesus speaking about the wind and the spirit. And so some translate verse 2 to be the wind of God was blowing on this combination of mud and water that was traveling throughout space. But the best translation is spirit of God. It, it, it ties in with other parts of Scripture in Job and Psalms and in Isaiah, which assert that God's Spirit was present at the creation. Psalm 104 verse 30 says, You sent forth your Spirit 
and they were created. And so we're to understand the third person of the Godhead present there, hovering. A word only used here and in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 11 of an eagle on its nest, brooding over its young, caring for its young, supervising its young. And here is the, is the Spirit of God managing this combination of, of mud and, and water that seems random and, and out of control. God's Spirit is there, His presence. And, and more than that, as, as Kelly and Leupold will, will argue, the Spirit seems to be putting in all the laws which will govern our world and our planet. He's hovering there with activity, supervision, and action. Leupold says, an intensified and vitalized type of vibration. We should not be averse to holding that the foundation for all physical laws operative in the world was now being laid in the Spirit's activity. He's hovering over the waters. And we need to hold on to this revelation because it's in direct contrast to evolutionary theory. How did life begin in evolutionary theory? In the miracle of life, Emmy award-winning TV program, this is how they described the explanation of the origin of life. 4.5 billion years ago, the young planet Earth was a mass of cosmic dust and particles. It was almost completely engulfed by the shallow primordial seas. And then it says... Powerful winds gathered random molecules from the atmosphere. Some were deposited in the seas. Tides and currents swept the molecules together. And somewhere in this ancient seas, the miracle of life began. Random, chance, coincidental. In direct contrast to the Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. God saying, let there be, and there was. For every Christian, what a, what a tremendous image for us to, to hold on to in our life. Here was this mass of mud and water, and yet God's Spirit was present, faithful, working. And how much more, how much more will God's Spirit be present, faithful, and working in his people's life.
to the very end of time. Absolute creation out of nothing. Relative creation out of something. The formless, void, watery mass. If you're not yet a Christian, maybe your mind, when you think of the origin of life, is taken up with molecules and theories and atoms and micro and macro evolution and categories and and species. But the Bible wants to direct you to another element of this account the darkness absolute darkness and the Bible asserts that that is an image of your understanding darkness within some theologies theology would argue that Christianity gives a person half of the apple That the non-Christian understands some things, but Christianity comes and gives the other half of the apple to understand some things in the right way and in the, the full way. But I think the Bible teaches that the non Christian doesn't understand anything in the right way. It's absolute, total darkness. Christ is the light. And you need to trust in him and follow him and look to him and plead with God for grace to enter into the light of his salvation and love. And if you are a Christian, this opening part of Genesis is covered in the Lord Jesus Christ as John chapter 1 reminds us. Not only is the Spirit there, But God the Son is there. Remember the words of John 1. All things were made by him. And without him was not one thing made that was made. And he who made all things entered into this world, John says. He came into the creation which he had formed. And he came to serve the creature and to die for the creature. And he turns to Christians and he says to us, I want you to follow my example. The greatest is to be the servant of all. As we think of Christ tonight, his greatness and what greatness it is coming to serve us, to love us, to die for us. Surely you and I will serve one another. Professor Edgar Andrews, in his book, Who Made God? He talks about building his garage and he says, the inspector came out and the builders were there and The inspector looked at the foundations which had been prepared and said, you need to go down two meters. 
It's only a two-meter garage. You need to go down two meters. And the builders objected to this and said, you know, the garage is not very high. And the inspector looked again. He says, in second thoughts, you have to go down three meters. And Professor Edgar in his, his book, he talks about the importance of a good foundation. And here is our foundation. Absolute and relative creation. And you and I, in this week, are to use it in our life. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth.